Welcome back to the second wave of quarantine evidence-based radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. I am really sorry for having disappeared off the face of the earth. I had planned to do dispatches from my vacation where I was going after I had to attend a work conference. Unfortunately, that work conference was in Orlando. And as we all know, Florida is not exactly uh, good at all in any way, shape, or form. Um, Honestly, full stop some days, but uh, for COVID restrictions. And so therefore, the conference couldn't have any COVID restrictions and didn't. And despite having worn a mask most of the time, I still came down with COVID. And so uh, let me start with highly suggesting that you get the new booster, especially as we're moving into the cold season when people obviously move further indoors and the ventilation uh, lessens as people don't want to open windows in the uh, cold days. Now, I did manage to get a booster, but sadly, it was only a day before I got on the plane to go to Florida because that was the first available time um, to get the new bivalent uh, booster. And so this ended up leading to me having to cut my vacation short and convalesce at my girlfriend's house. Um, luckily, I was able to do that because I definitely didn't want my husband to come down with it as well. And so I'm still kind of easing myself back into normal life, but I'm hoping that starting next week, I'm going to be back kind of to my old normal self. I'm feeling fine now. I'm mostly just having seasonal allergy issues as I always do, but, um, I'm still very, very frustrated that I uh, was infected because I had tried so hard and I wore my mask pretty much all of the time during uh, the conference and yet I still managed to get it, which of course shows how incredibly um, contagious it is. And so uh, it was very unfortunate and of course I gave it to my girlfriend And so both of us had it, and it took me about a week and a half to stop testing positive. Even though I felt a lot better, um, it still took a long time for it to work through my system. And so I uh, 100% do not recommend. (laughs) And um, so much of tonight's uh, show was actually written last month in anticipation of being a dispatch from the road. Um, But I really liked the stories, and so um, I hope you haven't heard all about them already because I'm late to the party, Um, but I really wanted to talk about them because I didn't want them to get missed out. And so the first story that I wanted to talk about tonight is going to be a pretty awesome find that reminds us once again 
that our ancient ancestors were quite a bit more advanced than many people believe they were. And so I talk about this all the time, so I don't want to belabor it too much, but um, if you are by chance a new listener, um, we here uh, at Evidence-Based Radio like to uh, every once in a while remind people that humans have been humans for a long time. And that means that our ancient ancestors had the same very, very smart brains that we do. And so they were able to do all sorts of things that we take for granted today as being something that we think of as being modern. A lot of times ancient people were doing things much the same. And so it's only through cumulative knowledge that we have things like computers and um, microcircuits and cell phones and things like that. It's only because we've had a really long continuous stream of knowledge transfer because another thing that would happen in the ancient world is that knowledge would be lost when different areas were conquered by people who weren't interested in the knowledge of their conquered foes. And so of course Greek and Greece and Rome were sacked several times and um of course we lost the uh library at Alexandria and all sorts of other um, examples of how knowledge was lost in the ancient world. And of course, there have been continuations of things. And the other thing that I always like to remind people is that, um, especially in America, we have this very uh, Western-centric idea about the world. And so um, China, for instance, was doing a lot of things before Europe even thought about them. Um, and we talked about that um, back in uh, early September or late August, where, um, for instance, movable type was developed in uh, Korea, I believe it was, uh, long before Gutenberg. And so I just want to have that little reminder that uh, the ancient world was pretty smart, and it was all over the ancient world, not just centered on the Mediterranean. Um, and so what has been found here is actually super amazing. Archaeologists have announced the discovery of a young adult buried 31,000 years ago. That is 31,000. And this skeleton shows signs of having survived a surgical amputation. The skeleton, called Thibaut 1, was found in the Liang Thibaut cave in Borneo and was dated using uh, dental remains from the skeleton. Now, this area consists of rugged, karst terrain with numerous caves and rock shelters, so this is definitely a place where you would want to have two legs. And so the skeleton's left leg ended a few inches above the ankle with clear diagonal cuts severing the ends of the tibia and fibula. Now, uh, this is absolutely the earliest yet evidence found for surgical amputation. 
Now, we don't know much about this individual other than the fact that they clearly survived for some time post-amputation. The skeleton was around 75% complete and was potentially male based on height, the pelvis, uh, sorry, based on height, the pelvis and the skull were not morphologically distinct. And so this was another reason that I wanted to talk about this because um, I found that some of the reports uh, specified that the in individual was male, but the researchers state Estimating sex along a binary when in reality sex is expressed along a spectrum of biological and morphological traits influenced by genetics, environment, and hormonal development is a well-recognized limitation in bioarchaeology. Therefore, sex is indeterminate for this individual. And I think that was so cool to read in a report from um, bioarchaeologists have them be very clear that this person is of indeterminate sex. They may very well have been male, but we can't tell just from the amount of skeleton we have. And also, as we all know in the modern world, even if someone has an androgenized skeleton, they may not have believed themselves or felt um, in their brain that they were male because we know that um, sex and gender are both on a binary. I'm sorry, are along a spectrum, not a binary. <laughs> And so, yes, it's very cool that they were very clear about this in the report. And uh, I was very sad. Uh, some science reporters who I read uh, were using the male pronoun for this skeleton, and it made me kind of disappointed um, because I think this is much more interesting and uh, dynamic than just defaulting to they were tall, therefore they were male. And so we know from other skeletons, both Homo sapiens and Neanderthals, of this age that life in the Pleistocene was pretty rough. But things like rockfalls or animal attacks leave distinct damage to limbs. They crush or shatter, shatter the bones. But Tebow I's bones look like they were expertly cut by someone who was skilled in medicine. The remodeling of the bones suggests that the individual lived for six to nine years post-surgery, with an estimated age of death between 19 and 20. This suggests that the amputation would have taken place when they were between 10 and 14. Now, amazingly, the bones show no signs of infection. Deep into the 19th century, Infection killed many more people than their initial wounds. So, for instance, during the Civil War, this was especially true. Uh, most people who died of the, in the Civil War died from infections. They didn't die from the gunshot wounds. They didn't die from, uh, you know, cannon shot. They died because they were punctured by uh, shrapnel or uh, bullets and then that wound got infected. And so this suggests that the person or persons who treated the young uh, the young person 
understood how to prevent infection much better than surgeons in Europe and America for hundreds of years. Now, some might say they just got lucky, but it really does look like they had some kind of knowledge of how to keep this in this wound from becoming infected. And it also suggests that there was a deep level of care for members of the community that allowed someone who was no longer able to do many important activities required for survival to continue to thrive. It is inferred that life without a lower limb in a rugged and mountainous karst terrain presented a series of practical challenges, several of which can be assumed to have been overcome by a high degree of community care, wrote Griffith University archaeologist Tim Maloney and his colleagues in the recent paper. Now, based on the thinning of the bone in both legs, researchers believe that Tabo 1 would probably have been relatively immobile. And yet, they grew up and thrived for several years before dying of what was very likely an unrelated disease or other cause of death. Now, again, it cannot be overstated how interesting this is. And again, it is about, it's another sort of uh, brick in the wall of tearing down, I know I'm mixing my metaphors terribly, uh, the very Eurocentric idea of civilization. So for instance, the earliest known surgical amputation previous to this uh, was from France just 7,000 years ago. And so this also this also uh, reinforced the idea that medicine was rudimentary at best until the development of agriculture and settled life. And so um, basically, this is once again challenging that idea because these people were, you know, nomadic hunter-gatherers. And yet they had this advanced knowledge of medicine and how to help this person. And so, again, one of the things you have to think about is that there have been millions of people who have lived and died over the millennia without leaving behind their remains to helpfully let us know how it was that they lived and died. And it's especially hard to find fossil remains in tropical areas where soil is often damp and acidic. But despite all of this, there have been in there have indeed been other examples of people with disabilities that were helped by their community for thousands of years. And we don't tend to hear about that sort of thing. Risk of death from trauma and disease has always been with us, and complex medical acts such as limb amputation could well have been more commonplace in the pre-agricultural past of our species than is broadly assumed at present, wrote Maloney and his colleagues. Now, again, we obviously can't infer from this too far the other way either. We can't necessarily assume that these hunter-gatherers were advanced medical scientists whose knowledge has been lost to us. Uh, and so uh, one of the things that I really want to, want to uh, you know, note and dismiss is the uh, sort of conspiracy theorist fodder that, uh, you know, clearly they had help from some advanced civilization or something like that. Almost certainly not. Almost certainly they just had knowledge of medicinal plants and had a um, knowledge path of how to deal with 
these kinds of um, accidents or um, issues in which they needed medical help. But again, it is incredibly cool to have discovered this and it suggests that we, it suggests it may have been more common than we would ever previously have thought. And so Maloney and his colleagues suggest that the comprehensive knowledge of human anatomy, physiology, and surgical procedures evident in Tebow 1's community is likely to have been developed by trial and error over a long period of time and transmitted intergenerationally through oral traditions of learning. And again, it's clear that the community was well-equipped to take care of Tebow 1, who would have required continuing care and to be helped with basic hygiene and other needs. But there is evidence that they contributed to the community and were buried with great care. They were buried with stone tools and a lump of ochre in the largest chamber of the cave. The grave was marked with three stones and was beneath a chamber with hand stencils. The area has some of the oldest figurative rock art, and the skeleton's right collarbone suggests repetitive stress from circular movements of the right shoulder. It may indicate that the individual helped process ochre into pigment. And so that is really cool. And um, one of the other things, uh, this is a tangent, but it, uh, I was watching a little video about how people um, became mostly right-handed. I am not. I am a lefty. Um, and I am actually a lefty whose parents are both right-handed. So that's actually uh, pretty unusual. But um, they found that when you look at rock art, most of the rock art is uh, right-handed. And so that's how they know that most people in uh, the Pleistocene in Neolithic times were right-handed because of those uh, handprints, which I thought was really interesting. And they could also tell people's handedness by uh, scratches on their teeth. So if you have a skeleton that has extant teeth, a lot of times people would use their teeth to uh, basically as a third hand. And you can see if you have a Neolithic hunter-gatherer that's scraping and they're using a scraping tool, then if they hit their teeth with it, it casts distinctive markings depending on which way, uh, depending on which hand they're using, which I thought was really, really cool. But anyways, <laughs> that is uh, slightly off topic. Um, it just, again, I cannot iterate <laughs> how exciting it is to have these kinds of finds that challenge the Eurocentric march of progress ideas about how civilization has developed because that march of progress thing is also a big deal. Like, we are not on some accelerative path. Um, I mean, we can see that in the kinds of regressive politics that are popping up all over the place. And in our current time, we absolutely have a problem with people wanting to suppress or deny knowledge. Um, and so I think it's a cautionary tale in some respects. I don't want to, you know, 
belabor it too far, but it is, you know, a kind of cautionary tale for how there are times when people have great knowledge and then that knowledge is lost somehow. And um, I don't want to say we're entering a new dark age, but there are days when I think we're entering a new dark age. Um, I'm sure it will be okay. Um, But yeah. (laughs) Okay. So we are going to move on and talk about a um, medical issue. And so um, just as a Another aside, in case you hadn't noticed, I um, read a report uh, yesterday, which was very distressing, that the CDC now um, indicates that we will probably continue to have monkeypox uh, be an endemic infection in the U.S., which is really distressing um, because, once again, this is a failure of uh, public health. And so I think that um, I know that the FDA or the CDC um, has been uh, sort of looking hard at reorganizing and being better at public health responses. But uh, yeah, this is definitely another place where I feel like our public health response uh, was woefully inadequate. inadequate. And, uh, you know, you have a very small time window in which to prevent this kind of thing to happen. And we just were not prepared at all. Uh, That's just the long and the short of it. And uh, the World Health Organization has now added the U.S. to its list of uh, places that have breakouts of polio. So, again... Uh, We had once eradicated polio from the continental United States, um, I think also from Alaska and Hawaii, but, um, and now it is back because people refuse to get vaccinated because, uh, I can't answer that question. I, I know what people's supposed reasons are, but I just, it absolutely boggles my mind that people refuse to get something that is so life-saving, especially polio, where when the polio vaccine first came out, people lined the streets to get it. And now people are refusing it. And I just, uh, what was that about a dark age? Okay. But anyways, let's talk about this particular uh, story that I wanted to actually highlight, which is that researchers from the University of Georgia have discovered a potential treatment for Chagas disease. And so this would be the first therapeutic medication for this disease in over 50 years. So, you know, that's a lot. Clinical trials should hopefully begin next year for the antiparasitic compound known as AN15368, uh, though I'm sure it'll get a much uh, more fancy title if it gets to uh, production. And so clinical trials should hopefully begin next year for this uh, compound again. I'm very optimistic, said Rick Tarleton, corresponding author and a UGA professor in the Franklin College of Arts and Sciences. 
I think it has a really strong chance of being a real solution, not just a stand-in for something that works better than the drugs we currently have, which is very cool. The compound targets the cause of the disease, the parasite Trypanosoma cruzii. Chagas infections generally present with flu-like symptoms, including fever, headache, and vomiting. The majority of people are able to recover once their immune system starts to fight back. However, in 30 to 40% of patients, the infection can progress and lead to severe heart disease that can be debilitating and potentially deadly. The new research, published in Nature Microbiology, found that the medication was 100% effective in curing mice as well as non-human primates that were naturally infected at a research facility in Texas. Not only were they cured, but there seemed to be little side effects, which is just crazy and amazing. Previous attempts have gone directly from mice to humans where they then failed. As we have noted many times... I always say, uh, you know, and there is, I don't know if it still exists, but uh, there was the famous Twitter account, Just Say In Mice, um, where people would overstate the uh, progress made on uh, clinical drugs, despite the fact that they had only thus far been tested on mice. And so the researchers hope that this drug, having shown excellent results in primates, will have a better chance of success. We've got something that is as close to effective as it can be in what is as close to a human as it could be, and there aren't any side effects. That really de-risks it by a lot going into humans, Tarleton said. It doesn't make it a fail-safe, but it moves it much further along. And so two T. cruzii is transmitted by insects known as kissing bugs or triatamine bugs, which are endemic to North, Central, and South America. The bugs bite people, but unlike a mosquito, it's actually the insect's fecal matter that people accidentally rub into their eyes, nose, or a cut in their skin. It can be transmitted in other ways as well such as via transplants or contaminated food, but these are less common. Current treatments for the disease are not bad, but they're not good. They can have serious side effects, and they are also not always effective. And people have to take the medicine for two full months. One in five people stops taking the medicine before it can have a chance to actually cure the infection. Plus, they have variable efficacy, and it's not predictable, predictable, Talton said. I think most physicians in Latin America have to say, we have a drug, it's going to make you feel bad, and two months later, after we finish it, we're really not going to be able to tell you if it worked or not. It's really not a good inducement to take the medication. And of course, this could mean that they continue to be infected with the parasite for years. And if you don't know, or haven't already inferred, part of the reason for this being the first potentially effective drug in 50 years is that this is a disease that predominantly affects people in poor areas. It's most common in Central and South America and in areas where people don't have access to adequate housing. 
Houses with thatched roofs, mud walls, or opening to the elements allow for the bugs to thrive, making it more likely people will become infected. The CDC estimates that around 300,000 people in the U.S. currently are infected with the parasite. One thing that is bringing more attention to the fact is that it is now attacking pets. Working dogs and other pets that are outdoors for long periods can be susceptible. There are areas where the infection rates are 20% to 30% new infections per year, Talton said. Those tend to be severe infections where the dogs either die or develop a disease that makes them unable to work. Smartly, but also sadly because he has to do this, Talton hopes to be able to work with veterinary pharmaceutical companies to create a treatment and to use the proceeds from that to fund diagnostics and medication purchases in Latin America. (sighs) And it is very, very annoying that he will probably have to do that. Um, But that is just the way things are in, uh, especially in this country. Um, And so... Obviously, something that mostly affects poor people is definitely down the list of things that our for-profit drug companies are interested in developing. And so this is another reason why we really need to encourage public funding of research and research in all areas, but definitely in these kind of um, medical uh, fields that can potentially develop these sorts of drugs for people who are not uh, good capitalist targets. And so it's definitely something that um, I think we really need to be more aware of is uh, the need for funding for um, basic science as well. And so um, I saw a I glanced at a uh, opinion piece, um, I think it was in Wired, uh, where someone was saying that, you know, we need to stop. It was either Wired or Ars Technica. And they said, you know, we need to stop having these sort of like moonshot uh, um, initiatives where we say, oh, we're going to... Uh, you know, map the brain or do these other sorts of things that are like a specific thing that they, you know, the government wants to get behind. And it's like, we don't, we, what we need is greater funding for basic science because basic science is what you need in order to create these other things that are out there that might be on the horizon. But if we don't have basic science, then it's really hard to find out new things. And so it's really important for public institutions to be funded, for more research to be done in public institutions. And, um, you know, I hope that at some point we will once again go back to being a country that cares about science and knowledge. Um, I just really don't feel like we are at the moment, but one can only hope. Okay, Um, on that (laughs) not so uh, encouraging note, let us take a break to do some show promos and some PSAs, 
And when we come back, we're going to talk about tardigrades. Fan favorite. Okay. Uh, please stay tuned. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis pregnant. That's pertussis. P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized and orderly, and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's Subculture Music Program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXLJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Okay, we are back. You are still listening, I hope, to Evidence-Based Radio. And as noted before the break, we are going to be talking about tardigrades. A new paper published in the journal PLOS Biology outlines how the tiny animals have a protein that forms a protective gel-like network in order to protect them when they are dehydrated. Researchers at the University of Tokyo have challenged the findings of a paper in 2017 
that posited that tardigrades use vitrification to survive in a ton state when dehydrated. The original paper suggests that the tardigrades use a special kind of disordered protein to create a glass-like matrix to prevent damage. I'm sure I must have talked about it at the time. However, a different team of Japanese scientists have now questioned the experimental data about vitrification and suggest that the findings could be attributed to water retention of the proteins. And so instead, the new research suggests that the tardigrades, rather than vitrifying, actually create a gel-like matrix. Our data suggests a novel desiccation tolerance mechanism based on filament-slash-gel formation, the authors of the new study wrote. Although water is essential to all life we know of, some tardigrades can live without it potentially for decades. The trick is in how their cells deal with this stress during the process of dehydration, said co-author Takikazu Kunieda of the University of Tokyo. It's thought that as water leaves a cell, some kind of protein must help the cell maintain physical strength to avoid collapsing in on itself. After testing several different kinds, we have found that cytoplasmic abundant heat-soluble proteins, or CAHS proteins, unique to tardigrades, are responsible for protecting their cells against dehydration. In this hypothesized mechanism, the CAHS proteins start to activate when they sense that the cell has become dehydrated. They then start to form networks that maintain the structural shape of the cell without water. Then, when the tardigrade is rehydrated, the gel filaments gradually recede to minimize stress to the cell. The latest research includes splicing the protein genes into both insect and human-cultured cells. Now, there was some difficulty with viewing the cells under the microscope as most stains have water-based solutions. And so the team used a methanol-based solution in order to incorporate the stain. They were then able to see that the CAHS proteins created the same sort of gel-like filaments. Besides learning more about how the tardigrades are able to survive being dehydrated, it could also potentially lead to new ways to preserve biological materials over long time periods. This might be helpful to preserve certain medicines and vaccines and could even perhaps lead to the better storage of organs awaiting transplantation. So that's pretty exciting. (laughs) Um, you know, tardigrades are amazing and any time we can use biomimicry to, uh, be able to adapt it to, uh, modern applications is always a good time and, um, is something that clearly I have been really interested in lately. And so this is another great example of that. Okay. Let's talk about birds. If you are a regular listener, you know I'm kind of obsessed with birds, so I'm sorry. Um, But these are definitely cool stories, so uh, I hope that you will not uh, fault me. And so the first one we're going to talk about is about 
some hummingbirds. And so it turns out that sometimes females in the bird world also have to come up with clever ways to be left alone, just the way that some human females have to do. Um, and animals and other, uh, other animals, I should say, as well. Um, it unfortunately seems to be something that develops over and over again. Um, so white-necked Jacobin hummingbirds have a colorful blue and white plumage when they're young. But when they grow up, the males retain this feather patterning, but most females develop a, mu a more muted palette, as is true in many other species of birds. So obviously birds often have a pretty uh, strong dimorphism when it comes to plumage. Um, so if you think of peacocks, for instance, or um, bowerbirds, all sorts of um, birds of paradise, uh, you know, the males have very striking plumage and often the females are much more subdued. Um, in your backyard, you can see it with cardinals. They're pretty easy to tell apart. Uh, the females are much more sort of um, brick red dusty uh, orange, uh, not nearly as um, bright red as the cardinal male. But anyways, getting back to our hummingbirds, around 20% of female Jacobins retain the male-like plumage into adulthood. Why do some female Jacobins look like males? It's a mystery made up of multiple pieces, said Jay Falk, a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Washington. Is there a benefit? Is there a cost? Is it just appearance, or do the females also act like males? So Falk and co-authors from uh, University of Washington, Cornell, and Columbia University report that the females that retain plumage do not actually mimic male behaviors, and they have a similar size and strength to their more muted compatriots. Female compatriots, I should say. They found that one in five of these male-colored females actually are practicing deceptive mimicry. They're passing themselves off as males without having to act as males. This gives them some key advantages, like having males be less aggressive toward them and allowing them to spend more time at hummingbird feeders. These hummingbirds are common in tropical lowlands throughout Central and North South America from southern Mexico to Sao Paulo in Brazil. And the males are marked by aggression. They defend territories and food sources, court females, and fight. The aggressive behavior is tied to their larger body sizes and physiology. They are better at combative flight than the females. So the team wanted to know if the females with plumage acted in the same way or had similar physiology. They captured male and both kinds of female Jacobins at a field site in Panama. They found that regardless of their plumage, the females had the same body size, smaller than males. Falk also tested their burst power or their muscle capacity during flight. The team tested this by seeing how high the birds could fly when lifting a chain of small weighted beads. 
both types of females had identical burst power, while once again the males had a higher burst power on average. They then looked at data from radio-tagged birds in the wild and found that females of both plumages fed for shorter periods of time across a large terri- larger territory, while males displayed a more territorial pattern, spending more time at a smaller number of feeding sites. Females with male-like plumage don't seem to be behaving any differently than other females, said Falk. All evidence instead indicates that females that look like males are engaging in deceptive mimicry. Now, deceptive mimicry is widespread in the animal kingdom. Many animals that don't have natural defenses like venom or poison will make themselves look like species that do have those defenses. And so you'll see um, all sorts of animals that are able to Uh, that make themselves look like more dangerous animals. Um, And so there's like species of frogs that uh, have, that are brightly colored, which usually indicates that they're poisonous, but they're not actually poisonous. Um, There is the um, king snake and the coral snake. I believe that's the two that are very similar. And one of them is uh, venomous and the other is not. Um, and there are, it's really common in the insect world. Um, and I think it's also, I think there's also some marine species that do that as well. So there's, um, animals in the, uh, ocean that will make themselves look like, uh, other animals. And, um, well, I know the mimic octopus will make itself look, um, like really, uh, venomous sea snakes, for instance, Um, Of course, the mimic octopus is uh, totally fascinating and uh, is one of the coolest kinds of octopi, octopuses um, out there. And so, yeah, it's actually, that's fairly common, but usually it's a, it's one species mimicking another species. This is intraspecies mimicry which is really interesting. Um, And so for this particular version uh, within a species, it seems to most benefit the females by reducing male attention and thus allowing them to feed more easily. And it turns out that other species of hummingbirds are also thought to sometimes have this kind of trimorphism um, or dim or odd dimorphism, I guess you could say, um, between uh, the males and the females. And so, of course, as with most things, more research is needed to see uh, really how many species of hummingbirds out there have this sort of thing. Um, can we find it in other birds? I don't know. Um, and so, Falk is planning to study the differences in the DNA of muted and male-like plumage to see how this trait may have evolved. And their studies show that there is even more to the story uh, than this kind of uh, intrasex dimorphism. And so they note that 
Even when I found average differences in female and male morphology, burst power, or behavior, I also found quite a bit of overlap between the sexes, said Falk. That indicates that sex isn't the only important factor and that variation among and between individuals plays an important role. And again, this is another kind of uh, idea about how uh, these sorts of traits are not on a binary, that they are, again, on a spectrum. And so I think that this is another great example of how... um, you know, physical traits and behaviors can be uh, much more uh, on a spectrum than just females do one thing and males do another thing. And so once again, science uh, absolutely backs up the idea that um, sex is not a binary. And um, so, yeah, I would just like to uh, skywrite that across uh, the country some days, <laughs> uh, especially these days. Just like, please read a scientific paper from scientists who are actually doing uh, this work and you will see that they do not find that sex is a binary. And so, yeah. Anyways, <laughs> that's enough of that. Uh Let us shift gears now and talk about bird brains. And so what we want to talk about is how birds are able to maintain such dense amounts of neurons. And so a study published in Current Biology finds that their neurons are able to run on less glucose than in animal brains. What surprised us the most is not per se that the neurons consume less glucose. This could have been expected by differences in the size of their neurons, said Kaya von Eugen of Ruhr University Bochum, or Ruhr University in Bochum, Germany. But the magnitude of difference is so large that the size difference cannot be the only contributing factor. This implies there must be something additionally different in the brain that allows them to keep the costs so low. And so von Eugen and colleagues studied pigeons to look at the neuronal energy budget of the birds. They used imaging methods that allowed them to estimate glucose metabolism in the brain and also used modeling to calculate the brain's metabolic rate and glucose consumption. They found that bird brains consume three times less glucose than similarly sized mammalian brains. Now, how they're able to do this isn't yet clear. It might be related to their higher body temperature or something in the specific architecture of their brain. Our findings explain Our finding explains how birds are able to support such high numbers of neurons without compromising on processing power, von Eugen says. In the long parallel evolution of birds and mammals, birds evolved smaller brains with high numbers of neurons that are capable of advanced cognitive performance, and it seems that the combined effect of bird-distinct elements, small neuron size, high body temperature, and bird brain-specific layout may have generated a possible advantage in neuronal processing of information at a higher efficiency. 
cheap neurons with advanced processing capacity. And so there are clues that as to what might be going on, but again, further research will be needed to understand the exact mechanistic explanation of how birds attain such a higher efficiency of neuronal processing. So the next time someone tries to call you a bird brain, say thank you. <laughs> um, and of course, pigeons are very smart. And um, I don't know where I read it. I read it somewhere, but um, someone was saying that, you know, if you ever want a bird, you should just go to a city and pick up a pigeon. <laughs> because they apparently make really good pets and they're super smart and you can just get one from the city. Just just pick one up. <laughs> um, obviously, I do not recommend that. Obviously, this is a uh, just an anecdote about something that I read and that is not an endorsement for doing that in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> um, if you're going to get a bird as a pet, please do it responsibly. Uh, please go through... Um, someone who actually knows about breeding and uh, selling birds and um, be prepared because birds, while they are amazing and lovely, um, are also kind of gross <laughs> um, because they don't have control over their um, elementary tract. So let's put it that way. <laughs> um and so, uh, though I think some birds can be trained, uh, yeah, there's definitely, uh, downsides to owning birds. Okay. So finally tonight, we are going to switch gears and talk about doppelgangers. And so it turns out that people who look very similar actually have similar genetics, that affect not just their appearance, but also certain general aspects of their lives. And so researchers looked at um, these people and found many similarities, but also differences, such as in their microbiome, which is considered obviously an important aspect of a person's overall aspect as well. So study author Manel Esteller, a geneticist at and director of the uh, Joseph Car Carreras Leukemia Research Institute in Barcelona, Spain, has previously studied identical twins and, with his colleagues, found that there were distinct epigenetic differences between otherwise identical twins. And so, basically, uh, epigenetic expression is the expression of your genes over time and a lot of that is impacted by um, your environment. And so in the new research, Esteller and his team looked at doppelgangers, people who look pretty much identical, but are not at all related. They contacted Canadian photographer Francois Brunel, who had taken portraits of doppelgangers as a long-term project. They were then able to get in touch with 32 pairs of people with very similar appearances who are willing to participate and, well, donate spit samples for genetic testing. In order to take some of the subjectivity out of the process, photographs of the pairs were run through three different facial recognition algorithms. This yielded 16 pairs that were returned as complete matches by all three programs. 
these pairs were focused on the focus of most of the work. In general, the pairs shared many SNPs, or single nucleotide polymorphisms, which indicate distinctive genetic makeups. Nine were so genetically in sync that they were considered ultra-lookalikes. But much like in identical twins, their epigenetics and oral microbiomes were largely different. The results were that these lookalike humans had similar genetic sequences and are therefore like virtual twins, while their epigenetic and microorganism flora profiles differentiate them. Estelle said in an email to Gizmodo, What was really interesting is not only did people look very similar, but they also had similar lives, with similar levels of education, height, weight, and even a history of smoking. In order to make sure that the pairs weren't actually related, they compared their genetics to pairs selected at random from other members of their ethnic population. Only one pair was suspected to have of having a relative sometime in the last several hundred years. Thus, we think that the generation of some genetic similarities between these couples occurred by random chance, Esteller said. There are so many people on the planet that the system is repeating itself. The combinations of the genome are no longer infinite. The research suggests that nature is quite strong, but nurture is able to tune the genome in some aspects of a person. They note that if genetics are this strong, it could be able to recreate faces from DNA. Now, the team suggested this would be useful in crime scene identification, but I think it would be far more interesting and justifiable to use it in cases where we could recover DNA from ancient people. I think it's way more fascinating to see reconstructions of faces based on ancient skulls so that we can see what people in the past looked like. They also suggest that certain facial features might actually be a window into risks for diseases such as diabetes or dementia. Esteller and his team plan to continue work into these aspects and to expand their project to find other doppelgangers. They also plan in future to look both at the transcriptome, how RNA is expressed over time, and the proteome, the actual proteins produced by the cells based on our genetic profile. All right, that is all we have for tonight. So hopefully we are back on track and I am looking forward to uh, doing this again next week. You have been listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.